Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara is then Raven Professor of Holocaust Studies. Hi, Dr. Romer. How are you? Hi, Dr. Valente. Good to see you again. I'm doing really well this weekend. Um, it's been an extended, longer weekend, so it's good to kind of regroup a little bit. And here we are again. It's Sunday. Yes, it's been a busy few days, so I'm so glad that we can have some time together to do another episode of the Ackerman Center podcast. Thank you for being here. It's the 4th of July weekend, and as we celebrate, as the United States celebrates its freedoms and the independence from Britain in 1776, I have been thinking a lot about how we are currently living a moment of national rethinking of what freedom means in this country, especially in light of the legacy of the lack of freedom for certain specific groups who have not enjoyed the promises included in the Constitution for some time. And so this, of course, is not the first time where we have this kind of national discourse and discussion taking place. And an obvious example that has come to my mind, you know, in these recent days is Emma Lazarus' 1883 sonnet, the poem that, you know, we can all recite by heart, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, that was about the Statue of Liberty and now is at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. And so... When she writes this poem, she is reflecting on this very turbulent moment in American history of the 19th century, where for the first time with the huge influxes of Russian Jews, especially they were coming to the United States, um, there was also this increase in xenophobic sentiment in America that saw its way very quickly into actual policies. So I think, first of all, you know, she's an interesting case in point. She herself is native. Um, she's exactly. born in New York. Uh, she's part of a Sephardic family of uh, kind of quite distinguished ancestry, fairly affluent. Um, it's part of that earlier segment of Sephardic Jews who actually don't make it directly to the United States. They initially cross the Atlantic and um, often um, come to Brazil and other places, amongst them also Recife, and then a few of them famously make it up um, north. And eventually out of that emerges what then becomes New Amsterdam, which is, you know, in lots of ways, the beginning of New York. And so then we have these posts of this well, kind of um, aristocratic, you know, spreading out of Sephardic communities, and she's certainly one of them. By the time she's born, however, in the middle of the 19th century, America is witnessing a second wave of immigrants, Jewish immigrants, and this time it's not those few Sephardic Jews, but German Jews initially mm -hmm. who come. Those are the 48ers. And around um, Texas, we know them all by the place names. You know, it's German and German Jews who come. That's why we have street names like Frankfurt. That's why we have places like Bernie and so on and so forth. And those integrate fairly well into the emerging fabric of American immigrant communities, in particular out west. And then comes the third wave. And the third wave of Jewish immigrants is largely made up of Eastern European Jewish immigrants coming in large numbers in the 1880s. They're not alone, um, not just Jews cross the Atlantic, but they 
across the Atlantic disproportionate numbers, far more than Russians do, um, Italians and so on and so forth. And many of them are skilled and therefore seek home in particular New York, which is devouring them, in, so to speak, because they're building up closing industry. And these workers are skilled and they're filling very quickly the need for this expanding market. Um, that the U.S. is now, you know, in the midst of creating ready-made closing. Mm -hmm. But that creates not just welcome and, uh, and happiness, but a lot of backlash as well. And we hear and see this very clearly around 1900, where the idea of what is America is really renegotiated. Um, I mean, and we've always been at this moment of these two kind of conflicting ideas. America as a kind of thought of, of as, as something that originated somewhere where there is a moment or America is something that is the multitude of the many that have come here and those that have already been here. That's equally important. Um, so that we are rather a multitude rather than, than just one. But around 1900, what's called nativism is, is attracting increasing attention and is pressuring um, legislation to restrict um, immigration. It is devoting now considerable attention to these emerging new ideas of race. Mm -hmm. Race is an issue that's still debated in the United States around this time, nature versus nurture. Um, but it's right in that smacking middle where not only uh, Emma Lazarus is, is, is writing those wonderful lines, but where also another immigrant, another kind of outsider voice, Israel Zangwill, writes the piece called The Melting Pot. Yes. And so you have like these two, you know, canonical moments, uh, you know, of what nowadays has become, you know, for us American, you know, past and its hope and its ideals that are formulated by these two different voices. Um, on the one side, um, Lazarus, and on the other side, Israel Sangwell. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think it's so interesting too, if we look at Emma Lazarus, at that time, when we have this influx of the immigrants coming, that she essentially becomes almost an activist, right? She goes down to the immigration center to to welcome these refugees. She is pushing for political humanitarian change, providing education for this recently arrived. But what is also really interesting is that through her work, she really starts to push um, this idea to the native-born Americans that they should be embracing this newly arrived immigrants, right? So. What I find so interesting about her work is that she is really posing almost this question, say, okay, who are we as America? She almost brings this, this notion of America's identity becoming entirely directly dependent on its ability to actually provide and ensure freedoms to all the people, right? To really live up to this ideal that... To, the, to, to, to embody really the ideals. But it's, I, you know, if you think about it, this got to have been one of the most exciting periods of, of the making of, of America because... You, yeah. in particular in New York, you have then this layering of, as well of these different immigrant communities. You have the Irish, you have the Italian, you have the, the Jewish immigrants, and they attract a considerable amount of attention at the beginning of the 20th century. But this is also the place where the American songbook is written, or a large yeah. part of it. And it's written in this kind of, you know, strangely exciting overlap of different immigrant communities. So right in the smacking middle, we find another famous um, immigrant who would give us the quintessential Christmas song, White Christmas, Irving Berlin. But early on, his very first song 
is a song that uses actually Italian songs and, and renders them into something new. And so this is how the young Irving Berlin uh, makes makes his beginning. Um, but in a in this Tin Pan Alley where you have all kinds of voices and melodies converging together, where ultimately it would be hard to to say you know, what is more authentic or less authentic or more original or less original. It's all America. Exactly. And I love that you brought him up because, you know, he very famously also will write God Bless America. In 1938. God bless America Land that I love Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. It becomes the second national anthem in particular, you know, from a perspective of a composer, his timing is almost uncanny. It's on the edge of the Second World War where obviously there's a you know, great desire for, for expression of patriotism. Mm -hmm. And so God Bless America becomes that very tune. Um, and then I think it's probably fair to say that for all of us, this uh, uh, White Christmas, I mean, referencing mm -hmm. even here in Texas, we, we, we will play this thinking about how much our image of Christmas is tied to snow and to a particular <laughs> moment. Uh, exactly. And, you know, not realizing that this, again, has come from a very particular point. So I think... You know, what I find interesting with every one of those moments that you mentioned, you know, Emma Lazarus or I threw in Zangville, and then we added on different Irving Berlin songs that of sorts we, have, you know, we realized that America's culture is, is kind of a making of various voices and various individuals that have come to, to bear. And so, you know, I recently, you know, had that uncanny realization that I was um, traveling, you know, just before the pandemic to, to El Paso and we, we mm -hmm. uh, were participating in a couple of concerts and I heard Mexican music and I thought, I know this tune. It's, it's kind of polka a little bit, isn't yes. it? And then I realized, yes, of course, it's the German and the Czech that come to Texas in the 1850s. Exactly that bring polka along with the, the Poles. And, you know, at that time, the boundaries and borders between these countries constantly move. So what is German? What is Czech? What is Polish? God knows. But whatever, they come. But what I find interesting, and this, you know, I think is, a, let's bear with me here a little bit with the polka, just for one moment. When those immigrants perform polka, it's for them initially a way of maintaining their Czech or Polish or German identity alongside their American identity. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a way it's acceptable to be both. And they, you know, here in Texas and in Bernie, they sing and dance and, and clock around in their little moves. And, but it's, they maintain their, their heritage of sorts. Mm -hmm. Now, when we hear pol polka today, it's part of American culture that has come down to us through our ancestors. So it's, it has changed very much. And then, you know, it has that interesting twist that insofar as polka becomes popular, you know, mm -hmm. and I know it's a bit strange music maybe, but I think it's funny sometimes. It also influences Tejana music. And so in lots of ways, that's the music that is played again on both sides of the border, meaning 
uh, both in Mexico as well as in, in the United States. So what is German? What is Czech? What is American? What is Mexican? Exactly. It's all music, um, and it has no boundaries, no borders, but it's kind of a confluence of different traditions. So I think if one looks at culture from that perspective, then I think you you cannot construct any images of, of a kind of purity of authenticity, but you can only welcome the the kind of excitement that comes from from this kind of clashing of, of things where you think, well that's got to be the strangest of mixing, right? Polka across borders and but it works, you know? Exactly. And I think that it's one of you brought up the the Great American Songbook. And I think that is exactly, you know, the moment where we see something that we think of as quote unquote so American, if we actually look, you know, who is composing these things? It's, you know, the Jewish immigrants, the first generation American born. And it, it really, you know, deconstructs this idea of the nativism, especially like I was saying, you know, at the beginning of the episode, you know, we are living in a very strange moment where there is, there is a lot of rethinking of what, um, you know, nationalism means, what patriotism means. And oftentimes, I think what is lost in that conversation is if we actually look at these things that, are, you know, come to our minds as, you know, quote unquote, so American, you know, God bless America, the poem by, by Emma Lazarus, well, let's think about the roots of these things. What was inspiring, you know, these these creators to create these kind of pieces of art and music and all of these things? And what did it become then subsequently? I mean, you know, if you just think movies, oh, um, yes. Ghostbusters, right? I mean, it's the Statue of Liberty with that inscription that is that embodiment of, of un, you know, unrestrained good that, that they are trying to, to motivate. Otherwise, I mean, there are endless amounts nowadays of these apocalyptic movies where um, somehow the Statue of Liberty is always part, mm -hmm. the, you know, the day after tomorrow or something where you see you know, her being all sunk into the ice or something like that. So it's really that iconic that if, for good or bad, if we want to, you know, illustrate this in a shorthand manner, we illustrate it by the Statue of of Liberty, where she is at, and you know, how she speaks to us or not. So it's a very, very, very powerful icon indeed. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, you know, the 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 idea that there is something that we can identify at one particular moment. In time, you know, on the 4th of July, we can, and we can kind of point to a particular right. vision of, of ideals of democracy, representation, and inclusion. And we mm -hmm. can pinpoint that to one particular act. But what American culture is, you know, luckily we can't because this way it's so much richer and so much more exciting. I mean, you know, and, you know, I, I tortured my kids with this a couple of years ago when I brought out for Christmas Bob Dylan's Christmas uh, songbook and there are polkas in there again where I think how how funny is that so yeah. um, where everything kind of turns one more time um, again where now Dylan is, is regrouping some polkas for an album for Christmas you know a couple of years ago they didn't enjoy it as much as I did to be fair to them you know yeah, no, but I think it's really remarkable that we can point to these, um, you know, different artists and different poets and, and to really reflect on how complicated the history has become. But in many ways, if we learn about the origins of many of these things, we really see a much more hopeful, um, you know, history, I think. You know, if we think about Emma Lazarus, the work that she was doing, really going against, you know, her work was really like manifestos against 
the very rapidly growing xenophobic moment that she was seeing, right? And like you mentioned, her family had been here since the American Revolution, right? They felt they had been here for generations and generations. And so I find great comfort in thinking about this as, you know, um, there is much more openness in the idea of what America is and what America can become um, if we reflect on the contributions of these Jewish immigrants and others to this American ideal or American culture in general. So, Absolutely. And I think it's also, you know, last year the um, Center for Jewish History uh, hosted an exhibit about Emma Lazarus. And alongside with it, they had a whole bunch of activities. One of those that I th thought was particularly timely, but also really, you know, lots of ways cleverly designed, was to turn to the school children and to have them rewrite you know, how they would nowadays write that poem that Emma Lazarus uh, painted. And so I think that could be really an interesting moment if you think about, okay, not that we want to replace that poem, it's perfect for what it is, but if as a way of revisiting it and reinvesting it with with new meaning for us, we could just temporarily have our, our school children rewrite it in, in their own voices and see how that turns out. Yes, and so to conclude, we'll play a little clip that um, Irving Berlin actually composed based on the Emma Lazarus poem. This one's called Give Me Your Tired and Your Poor, which he set into music. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these the homeless tempest toss to me i lift my lamp beside the golden Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Romer, very much. It was a pleasure being here with you. Thank you, Dr. Valente. Thank you for listening. The fragment of God Bless America you heard earlier in this episode came from Irving Berlin's performance at the Ed Sullivan Show in May of 1968. And the concluding song comes from the 1949 Broadway musical Miss Liberty, which Irving Berlin adapted from the poem The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus into music. We hope you enjoyed this episode about how America is, has always been, and will always be the multitude of many. To keep in touch with us, visit our Ackerman Center website at utdallas.edu. And be sure to follow us on social media for updates on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.